I wanted to write as an out-and-out, unabashed <laughs> fan of The Great Gatsby, admirer, worshiper, but I also wanted to step back and to try to figure out how, does, how did this masterpiece come to be and how does it work? That's Maureen Corgan, book critic for NPR's Fresh Air, critic in residence at Georgetown University, and author of So We Read On, How the Great Gatsby Came to Be and Why It Endures. Today, we'll hear from Corrigan about F. Scott Fitzgerald and The Great Gatsby. She'll explain just what makes a great American novel so great and how literature is taught in high schools and colleges today. You're listening to Common Ground, a podcast brought to you by the Hallenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan. Maureen Corgan's book, So We Read On, makes a bold claim. Namely, that F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby isn't a great American novel. It's the greatest American novel. An argument like that requires a defense, so I asked Corgan to give one. We talk about that, plus the life and work of F. Scott Fitzgerald, as well as the America for which he wrote. Finally, I asked Corgan about the state of literary criticism today, and what place contemporary literature has in the national conversation. Also, just a note, at certain points in the interview, you'll hear the clamor of construction or industrial equipment. Though it wasn't intentional, we didn't mean for those sounds to be in there, uh, there's something interesting about them. You might imagine that we're doing the interview in the Valley of Ashes from Gatsby, being watched by the massive eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg. If you get that somewhat forced reference, you'll probably like this episode. Thanks very much for listening. This is Common Ground. If you don't mind, we can just start with the big, bold claim of your book, <laughs> uh, uh, which is that The Great Gatsby is the great American novel. And of course, to be the great American novel, it would have to make some large statement about what it means to live in America or to be an American. So in your introduction, you write this. Gatsby's magic emanates not only from its powerhouse poetic style, in which ordinary American language becomes unearthly, but from the authority with which it nails who we want to be as Americans, not who we are, who we want to be. In what ways does this book nail the values and aspirations of Americans in the 20s? Yeah. In the 20s and today, because um, that dread word universal, I do think that this is a book that transcends its time, even mm. though it's locked into some of the social arguments and also some of the biases of its own time mm. against immigrants and race and even this terrible fear it has of, of women in the driver's seat, literally, right. with, with Daisy Buchanan. I, I do think it nails that aspirational sense that I, I think we as Americans like to um, embrace as our own, that we do want to run farther, reach out our arms, mm -hmm. And and just try to reach for the for the sky or, or the green light or the green light right. or the silver pepper of the stars. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite lines from the novel uh, that that we really want to try and we want to believe that this country, we do believe that this country allows us to try. Of course, we fall short. America falls short on its promises. We all inevitably go under. By the time you get to its end, it has it both ways. It says it's beautiful, it's noble to try, even though inevitably we're going to fall short. So, so by, the, by the time you wrote this book, uh, the Academy had already been flooded 
with criticism of The Great Gatsby. What did you want to contribute to the conversation? I didn't want to speak about The Great Gatsby in traditional academic terms. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to do a dissection of The Great Gatsby. I really wanted as much as possible to try to get into his mind and heart and his own aspirations in writing it. I wanted to try to place the reader there. Um, So in some ways, for me, writing this book was a melding of mind and heart as a critic. Um, I always loved what someone said in an obituary of for Irving Howe. Um, And one of these days I will look up that obit writer because I quote that person a lot, that Irving Howe taught us that enthusiasm is not the enemy of the intellect. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel that emotion is, or love, is the enemy of the intellect either. So... I wanted to write as an out-and-out, unabashed fan of The Great Gatsby, admirer, worshiper, but I also wanted to step back and to try to figure out how how did this masterpiece come to be and how does it work? It's so different from his other earlier novels. Not some of the short stories approach this greatness, but the earlier novels, and in my opinion, the novels that follow, nothing, nothing comes close to The Great Gatsby. How does that happen? How does the Sistine Chapel happen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I wanted to try to get to explore. But you argue that, quote, The Great Gatsby is one of the first modern novels to look squarely at the void, yeah. yet it stops short of taking a flying leap. Yeah. Could you talk a bit about that? In what ways does it not jump headfirst mm. into the modern malaise? We have Nick worshiping Gatsby Mm -hmm. after his death. We have Nick yearning and reaching out for Gatsby and saying, you know, Gatsby was all right in the end. It was the foul dust that preyed upon Mm -hmm. him. Um, There are, in other words, there are things in this world and people who are worthy of admiration, worship, respect. So it's not a cynical novel. Mm -hmm. It's a novel that looks at disillusionment, looks at loss, looks at the void, but says you've still got it. You've still got to believe. You've still got to keep mm-hmm. trying. Mm-hmm. So you also suggest that Gatsby is one of the only great American novels that seriously takes up the question of social class mm-hmm. as a category. Mm-hmm. In what way? Yeah. Well, oh gosh. <laughs> in many ways. <laughs> do, we have four, ways. do we have yeah. four weeks? Uh, <laughs> you know, first of all, when you think about, when you go back and you look at the early drafts that we have of this novel, Fitzgerald was so obsessive that we've lost a lot of the early drafts and... You know, I've, I've looked at his own copy of Gatsby at, at Princeton um, in the collection there. And even after the, the first printing of the first edition, Fitzgerald is making changes. Mm. And he's so obsessive about getting it right. But one of the things he does in the beginning, if you think of the first three chapters, he opens in the Buchanan's house, mansion. So there we've got the very rich with breeding. Then we go in chapter two to the Valley of Ashes, mm-hmm. the poor, the aspirants, um, who are never going to make it, who are never going to grasp the golden dream, you know, ring or the green light. And then in chapter three, we've got Gatsby's house. There's the new rich, mm-hmm. you know, the the uh, the folks who've just made it, uh, but they don't have breeding. So Fitzgerald tinkered um, with the structure of those first three chapters and where he placed them. The rich, they can afford to be careless. Mm -hmm. The rest of us, well, think about poor Myrtle. You can't afford to be careless. So about 100 
pages into the book, you write, quote, I don't see how anyone who reads Fitzgerald's letters and the biographies, even the ones written by Zelda partisans, yeah. can possibly come away without two feelings. First, some contempt for Hemingway, that's <laughs> Ernest Hemingway, and you say, the man, not his work. Yeah. And second, a deep respect for Maxwell Perkins, oh, the man yeah. and his work, and that's on page 117 for uh, listeners. What were Fitzgerald's relationships like with writers and editors from his generations? What are some highlights? Well, um, of course, with Hemingway, they meet in the year 1925, mm -hmm. in the spring of 1925, right after Gatsby comes out. And, and Fitzgerald is working as a kind of unofficial agent for Scribner's, trying to draw in promising new writers. And he admires Hemingway, mm -hmm. who at that point, you know, he's... He's published some short stories, but he's not, um, he's not the name he would become. Fitzgerald is the great writer, and as legend has it, they meet in the Dingo Bar in Paris, and they strike up this great friendship. Everything I've read about Hemingway uh, underscores the fact that the minute he felt threatened, the mm -hmm. minute he felt in competition, um, he began to really, you know, take out the long knives, and that happened with Fitzgerald. Um, Fitzgerald, especially after uh, The Sun Also Rises comes out in 1926, Hemingway started, you know, feeling his success yeah. and um, sort of, I think, resented comparisons with Fitzgerald. Gertrude Stein famously said that Fitzgerald burned with the brighter flame, mm -hmm. and that was the death knell for the friendship. So, um, you know, what, what I can't forgive Hemingway for is that the fact that in the 30s, when Fitzgerald was going through a, one of his really bad depressions, mm -hmm. um, Hemingway writes to Fitzgerald and recommends that he, Fitzgerald, commit suicide Sheesh. so yeah. that um, Scotty and Zelda can you know, profit from insurance money. Wow. And he goes, you know, I opened the book with, in my book with this letter, he he recommends that, you know, Fitzgerald not only commit suicide, but that he chop up his body somehow after death. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, you know, throw your head in the Mediterranean, I forget exactly, but one part of him should go to Princeton. You know, he, and he's having a great time with this metaphor, but he's writing to somebody yeah. who is, you read those crack-up essays that Fitzgerald mm -hmm. wrote in the mid-30s, he's honestly struggling with deep, dark depression. Um, so it's nasty. It's like a kick in the teeth. Was this Hem was Hemingway being facetious, or was this a sort of Hemingway's hyper masculinity and sort of? Uh, I, I think we, you know, we can get out our, our you know, Freudian Freud, yeah, decoder sure. rings. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, all of those things, and also the terror I think that some people have okay. when um, anyone voices weaknesses that they themselves feel they might have. You know, who knows? Who knows? But it's nasty stuff. It's nasty stuff. What about Gertrude Stein? So Stein had a, a sort of power yeah. over both Fitzgerald yeah. and Hemingway, especially in Paris. You talk about yeah. that? Yeah. Well, they both knew her. They both mm -hmm. attended those salons that she had. Um, as, you know, Alice Toklas, of course, would mm -hmm. preside over the wives or the female partners of, of the artists and writers in another room. Um, she, Stein was a great supporter of, of Fitzgerald. Uh, when Gatsby came out, she told him, and you know, just paraphrasing the letter that she wrote to him, that 
you you write in sentences, and that is a great right. thing. You know, one of those <laughs> wonderfully cryptic uh, Gertrude Stein quotes. But she really she really was a supporter of Fitzgerald. Uh, nobody liked Zelda as usual, mm-hmm. but she really was a supporter of, of Fitzgerald's work, and especially of Gatsby, and that meant a lot to him. Um, I think again, Hemingway was was in competition. Anybody who drew the light away from him, the spotlight mm-hmm. away from him, was somebody to be in competition with. I don't. It didn't start out that way, and I, as I say in my book, I think Fitzgerald could be um, kind of a a high maintenance friend. He was always getting drunk. He was showing up at, at Hemingway's apartment where he was living with his first wife and their baby mm-hmm. son, you know, knocking on the door at one in the morning, one, wanting to party. But um, I, I, I think I come away from everything I've read by and about Fitzgerald just with a sense of him as being very open-hearted and Hemingway not so much. Hemingway mm-hmm. always on his guard. Um, Stein, if she liked you, you were golden, and and if she didn't like you, <laughs> watch out. But um, she did like Fitzgerald, and she did admire his work. They were mutual admirers. Mm-hmm. So, and one thing we were talking about before we started is um, I, I started reading your book right after I finished a bit of Trilling, mm-hmm. and. You cite Trilling in the beginning of your book, along with Mencken and a few yeah. others, as being inspirations in terms of writing for uh, educated non-specialists. Um, I'm just wondering, wh- why are you drawn to that sort of work, to the writing for educated yeah. non-specialists? Because that's what those thinkers, writers, critics, thought they had a responsibility to do. Um, they wanted to talk to all of America, mm-hmm. you know? Sure. They didn't just want to talk to the classroom or to other mandarins. They wanted mm-hmm. to talk, you know, to that great democratic ideal, to people who had had a decent high school education, and if you wrote clearly enough, you could reach them. Um, I, I think that's a really admirable ideal, mm-hmm. and I think it's an ideal that um, ac- academics, you know, because of the way we're trained, because of whatever, personality, because of insecurity, we, we don't we don't aspire to enough. So I, I really, I, I admire Trilling. I admire Alfred Kazin mm-hmm. a lot. He's the guy who, uh, in the early 50s, you get this first collection of criticism about Fitzgerald. It's edited by Kazin. I tried my best to find out why that book came to be and um, kind of reached a dead end, mm-hmm. even talking to Kazin's biographer and his son, Michael Kazin, who teaches history here at Georgetown. But um, you know, Kazin wrote a beautiful essay himself about Fitzgerald. Beautiful, you know, tough appreciation. But if you, but not closed off. You know, obviously didn't rely on jargon. Didn't rely right. on literary theory terms um, to close off the conversation. Anybody who had read Fitzgerald, and felt like you know they had some understanding of Gatsby, could read Trilling, uh, Kazin, all of the other, Gilbert Seldes, who also wrote an amazing essay about Gatsby when it first came out. They could read those essays and understand them. 
So there's another resonance between your work and Trilling's that I want to talk about. Um, and on page 19, you describe the free song of, quote, being read mm-hmm. by Gatsby. Mm-hmm. Uh, that yeah, is, the yeah. feeling that the novel yeah. knows you, reads you, understands you better than you yeah. might know or read or understand yourself. Trilling likes to quote W.H. Uh, Auden on this point, who says that good books, as you say, read us. Mm. I'll just quote Trilling here really quick. Uh, quote, he says, Some of the best books at first rejected me. I bored them. <laughs> but as I grew older and they knew me better, they came to have more sympathy with me and to understand my hidden meanings. Their nature is such that our relationship is very intimate, end quote. Is that how you feel with Gatsby? Yeah. Aren't we all mad? I mean, we're, I guess we're all crazy sitting, sitting in our corners reading these books and, and feeling such an intimate bond. But right. yeah, that's how I feel with Gatsby. That's yeah. how I feel with Gatsby. Um, I also I also agree that oftentimes you have to make yourself relevant to the book rather mm-hmm. than the other way around and that's why I don't have as much enthusiasm for identity politics right. and reading as some of my colleagues. So in what in what manners do you, so particularly with Gatsby? Yeah, you know, I had I I had I I teach a Fitzgerald seminar yeah. now at, at at Georgetown had a great class this semester, had a particularly smart student in the class who I had had before in other classes, but she was very fed up with Fitzgerald Mm -hmm. and and, uh, in Gatsby in particular because, you know, because of the charge. There are no favorable women characters in Gatsby. In fact, all of the women are either femme fatales or victims or, you know, wherever we put Jordan Baker. Um, And she would she would not get past that, that women were not well represented in the novel and that the gaze was male. Right. And, you know, right, it is. In Bernice Bob's Her Hair, a short story mm-hmm. this student mm-hmm. really liked, of course, the whole, he does, Fitzgerald does a masterful job right. of getting into that teenage right, right, right. Um, sort of, female world. Story. Yeah, it's yeah. a great story. Yeah. Um, but I... Of course the gaze is male. And so for the time that I'm stepping into that novel, I'm going to I'm going to be in that world. I'm going to be looking through those eyes. Yeah. I I I keep insisting that that's a gift that literature gives us that it's not us all the time that you step into someone else's world. But you know, another reason why why I argue and love uh argue for the value and love uh crime fiction, mm-hmm. classic hard-boiled novels. Please, they're, they're misogynist, racist, on and on. Um, every other crime against political correctness you can think of. But it's a different world. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step into mm-hmm. it. Um, so it, I, don't, I don't know that I persuaded her right, sure. <laughs> of anything. Um, but, I mean, there are different ways you could argue with Gatsby. You can certainly say Nick Carraway, um, you know, it, there's almost this kind of, um, I think with all of Fitzgerald, almost this feminine intuitiveness, sensibility that seeps in. But, you know, I I can't argue with people who just want to see themselves represented in, in various texts. Mm-hmm. If, if that's the way you're going to judge literature or art, um, and I'm not, I'm not talking about constructing a syllabus or a college experience, but if you're going to judge discrete texts by right. whether they're 
they're comprehensive in their representation, um, you know, then I can't do anything with you. So, and one one element of that I think you're talking about is, and you you reference this in your book, is this or at least suggested in your book that there is a split between the academic study, the current academic study of literature, yeah. and and this work you do for yeah. NPR. I have a quote here from page two seventy four. Uh, spending a couple hours reading English department course descriptions for the 2013-2014 academic year would turn even Edmund Wilson into a business major. There's an, there's an air of... That was a good quote. That was a good quote. That's why I got it here. There's an air of, quote, this is all quote, aggressive absurdity around many of these syllabi so heavily inflected with jargon about post-colonialism and culture theory. Uh, could you talk a bit yeah. about that? Yeah, yeah. I really don't even understand some of the course descriptions. Sure. I, I don't understand. I feel like I feel like we're at the Masonic Temple give, giving a secret handshake. And, you know, you've got to be at a certain level a of, 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 of jargon to even understand the handshake. I feel like there's, you know, the humanities are so threatened. The humanities, we feel like we're under siege if mm -hmm. we're teaching literature. And one of the responses um, to that sense of, threat has been, well, you know, we'll circle the wagons and we'll become even more um, kind of codified in our language right. and we'll, we'll make it seem like literature in order to understand it the way we professors understand it, that you've really got to go through this rigorous initiation right, right of um, absorbing the language and the point of view in order to, to really be able to read texts, and then you've learned something. And I don't feel like that's the end point mm -hmm. or the desired end of, you know, a major in English or a minor in English or reading in general. So um, I think the professionalization of, of English studies has for the most part been, um, you know, kind of a... a, a has sort of drained the life and the vitality mm. and the um, sense of surprise and adventure about entering these texts. Because, you know, we're all too nervous that, well, anybody could do this. Everybody sits down and reads a book at some point in their life. Why do you need somebody like me, this, this priestly intercessor, right. to be standing there at the front of the classroom um, cracking open the book for you? Really, if, if you if you thought about enough and read carefully enough, maybe you could do it for yourself. We're all nervous about that. Well, it does seem like every time you open, or, or rather click on, you know, uh, The New Republic or any sort of um, magazine of cultural note, there's always some article about the, quote, death of the humanities yeah. or the crisis of the yeah. humanities. I mean, uh, p part of that is has got to be the rise of, of business majors and the general feeling yeah. that an English major or a major in the humanities won't get you a job. By the same token, there have been people who have argued that the humanities have, in a sense, been doing themselves in. Uh, do you have any comments on that? Um, I think also you've got to throw in there the astronomical cost of a college sure. education, that colleges themselves are big business. So what are you getting in return? Mm -hmm. Um, and only the very rich, at, you know, at a certain point can feel like they've got the luxury of spending four years sure. reading novels. Sure. Um, it was very different when I, when I was an undergrad in the 70s. And I came, you know, as, as I say in my book, I came from a blue-collar background. Mm -hmm. 
when I was dithering about whether to major in English, which I wanted to do, or major in journalism at Fordham oh. University, that that was, you know, kind of the practical. Um, we we laugh now. Journalism seems <laughs> almost as decision. as frivolous um, in terms of getting right. a job as as being a liter literature major. Um, when I was kind of dithering between the two, my father, who was a refrigeration mechanic basically you know said to me do what you love do what you want to mm. do and then he showed me a couple of poems that he had written so um you know i i really cherish that and i i i know that you know it it's a risk to say that to a a kid in college mm -hmm. but um I, boy life really is short and um i do have to believe that if you do what you love, you'll find a way to make a living, even if even if maybe you you, you know you don't teach literature right. for for a living. There are loads of things that that our majors are doing, um, advertising and consulting and all you know, kind of all the all the 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 those kinds of jobs where I never know actually what people are doing during mm -hmm. their day, but they all seem to get them. Um, I I somehow think that if you got the imprimatur of a decent college degree. That, that you find your place. I do think the humanities, I looked at, at those course descriptions from various colleges trying to figure out, and universities trying to figure out, are people teaching Fitzgerald mm -hmm. at the college level? And there were so many course descriptions where I just felt um, my soul wither up and dry. I thought, my God, if I had to sit there for a whole semester mm -hmm. listening to this jargon about um you know resistance and post yeah post-colonialist theory is really hot but you know nothing beyond that it's just sort of like the buzzwords but right. nothing beyond that i just i i felt like oh my god i don't i don't want them to teach fitzgerald i don't want them to teach the great gatsby what are they going to do put it through the deflavorizer mm. machine what's going to come out at the end this is awful this is just awful well and, and speaking of professionalization and finding your way in the humanities. I mean, you're doing two things right now that yeah. you're sort of straddling the line between public intellectualism at NPR and with mm -hmm. your book So We Read On, but then also your, your professor at mm -hmm. Georgetown. Do you take the same questions you take to novels at, at NPR? Um, or do, you, do you ask the same questions as an NPR critic and professor at Georgetown of texts? That's a good question. Um, I think when I'm teaching... I will sometimes, I not not sometimes. I will um, teach books that maybe if I were reviewing them for NPR, I would give them a mixed review. Okay. But I'm I'm putting those books on the syllabus to illustrate a certain point, either about New York in the '30s mm -hmm. or. Um, now I'm blanking. Of course, uh, Tess Schlesinger's book, which novel about New York in the 30s, which I always blank on the name of, um, is, I think, ugh, a real slog to get through. But I do it because I think it makes a great point about Greenwich Village life in the 30s, and I want my students to have that dimension. Mm -hmm. If I were re reviewing it for NPR, I probably would say... Well, there's an interesting view here, but um, the language is really um, difficult right. to, to crack. And maybe, you know, it's, it's not a pleasure. It's a call to duty rather than a call to right. pleasure. I have those books on my syllabus where 
where for NPR, I might be more attentive to, are people actually going to like the experience of reading this book? Okay. And if they're not, then I really have to um, make a much stronger case than I do in class mm -hmm. for why it's worth your while to buy the book, to spend hours of your life reading it, um, if, if it's not going to be a pleasurable experience. I think that counts more for the books I recommend on NPR. Would, would there ever be a case on NPR where you would recommend a book actually because the language is difficult and terse and it would it's because it, you do have the feeling after uh, you you read a page over and over again and you finally get it there's yeah. this feeling like your your neural framework has somehow sort of expanded yeah. or yeah there is um, well you know Elena Ferrante's novels which everyone is talking about and which I mm -hmm. I love they're not easy reads right. um, that that Neapolitan series that that she she I guess we'll will accept that she's a she um, she's produced uh, there are pages that I've had to reread over again in that series but you know the payoff is you really do get this sense of wow felt life over mm -hmm. decades especially of the two main characters there so it's not like everything has to be certainly mid-cult on NPR. That's mm -hmm. not the case. And I think one of the one of the glories of my job is that I am given free reign. If I can convince my producers that it's worth reviewing, mm -hmm. that whatever I'm doing is worth reviewing, I have reviewed, you know, famously I reviewed E.P. Thompson's posthumous book on the Muggletonian religious sect. <laughs> you know, because I wanted to talk about Thompson. I wanted yeah. to talk about this strange you know, sect that he talked about in his last book. If I can make my language open and alive enough, I hope, then then that's that's a way to promote that book, which otherwise most mm. most general readers are mm. not going to pick up. In the uh, New York Times review of your book, the author says, quote, "This book will send you back to the source as it yeah. sent me." Do you feel like in the age of, say, Netflix, uh, it's the reviewer's job in part to get people just reading again? I do, but I, I, I you know, this is going to sound contradictory to what I just told you, but I, I also feel like if we're um, too cajoling, mm -hmm. like I think we have to respect our listeners, our readers, and make the daring assumption that actually people do want to read good, sure. good sure. books. I think they do. Uh, I think a lot of people do want to read good books. So um, I think it's insulting to my, in most cases, it's a listener, to my listeners to sort of make that opening assumption that, oh, you, you, you're going to... Ring their arms yeah, together. Yeah, you're, rather, you're going to watch, yeah. watch Orange is the New Black rather yeah. than pick up Elena Ferrante. Well, right. maybe not. Maybe, maybe you actually do want that experience of losing yourself in a book. Well, you know, I, I do want to talk a bit about uh, the prose in your book. Um, i got to crack open my copy here. Um, I, at, at times, I just laughed out loud. I thought your prose was really funny, in Thanks. part because, well, in part because it just shows your, you, you front end your thinking, your actual yeah. thought process in a way that I thought was, yeah. was actually pretty bold. Um, so you're talking on page 101 about, um, um, you, you say, because, and this is about a, a certain passage in the book, because Tom's tirade is played for laughs in the very first chapter of The Great Gatsby, it reassures us from the outset that the novel is inclusive, even progressive, in its politics. So here you're talking about the political aspects mm -hmm. of the novel. 
Then we, then we run smack into Wolfsheim and watch in dismay as those speeding carloads of immigrants and African-Americans roar past Gatsby and Nick on the Queensboro Bridge. What to think? What to think? Certainly the, novel, certainly the novel carefully notices race and ethnicity. Gatsby, undeniably, is worried about America on the move. You continue, but, 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 that antic automobile race, which dramatizes Goddard's and Tom's very fears, concludes on a note of anticipation, not dread. Uh, quote, maybe the most accurate thing to say about the politics of Fitzgerald's novel is that as a product of the early mid-1920s, Gatsby doesn't know yet what's going to happen to America. So in these passages, you sort of show your thinking in yeah. almost the manner that you would if you were standing yeah. in front of a group of students, which is you're working through the novel and its meaning yeah. with us. Why do it that way as opposed to doing all your thinking in an early draft and then polishing it and showing us your thought in its full sort of yeah. sort of uh, fully developed form? Well, that's a great question. Thanks for reading my book sure. so carefully. Oh, yeah. Because sure. um, I wanted to lead the reader along with me. I wanted to say, come along come along and walk through this novel once again with me mm -hmm. and um, take the detours I'm taking and find some unexpected places in this novel. And most of all, I didn't want to say, oh, and, and let's solve it together. Right. I, I don't want to solve it. I, there, I, there are things in this novel, um, you know, I, I mentioned that I spoke to Scott Shepard, the actor who plays Nick Carraway in mm -hmm. the Elevator Repair Service Repertory Theater Company production of Gats, which is like seven and a half hours, which I saw twice, which is amazing. You start your book with, <laughs> you went with your husband by yeah. bus? Yeah, so, by Greyhound yeah. bus up, up to New York because we had yeah. gotten two tickets at the last minute. It was the sensation of the 2011 right. theater season off-Broadway, and it was the night before Thanksgiving, and right. we had to be back here for Thanksgiving. So we, we did. We pulled an all-nighter, and we went up by, <laughs> by bus. I, I didn't want to drive. He didn't want to drive. Right. And, um, and we saw that production. But Scott Shepard, who is the human being who has, in a sense, read Gatsby more than any other human mm -hmm. being in the history of the world, because he plays Nick Carraway night after mm -hmm. night, so, so, and he's memorized the entire novel. I asked him, are there passages in the novel that puzzle you and he he said yes and he talked mm. about passages i love that we you know we should be able to look at great works of art and and just say i don't get that and i don't know what that means and let me think about that some more you know since writing my book i have gotten emails mm -hmm. letters uh from quest uh, from from readers uh, about all sorts of things like why do uh, Tom and, and Daisy eat fried chicken after Myrtle's death? You right. know, what about that? That was an odd pass. That is it is, you know, why is it fried chicken? <laughs> right, you know, yeah. why isn't it meatloaf? You know, <laughs> right. um, there are uh, all sorts of questions about, um, um, uh, about whether or not Nick is gay. How do we mm -hmm. read the, the mm -hmm. end of chapter two? You know, it goes on and on and on, uh, questions that... Um, people are fascinated by the description um, in which Fitzgerald references Goya, you know, towards the end, very end of the novel. Um, that's, I, don't, I don't know, ultimately, whether Gatsby is a quote-unquote racist novel, right. anti-Semitic novel. You know, I think it's a novel of its time. I think Fitzgerald had some, had some of the prejudices of his time, which he later regretted in the 30s. But... 
the verdict of this novel on America, I think it's anxious about where America is mm-hmm. heading and it doesn't know yet. So um, I don't want to be one, one of those critics who is superior to the work. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't want to be cute and you know coy in my worship either and, and unjudgmental, but I, the reason why I'm spending so much time with this novel is because I do think it's an American masterpiece, and that means that in some ways it's, be, it's beyond my understanding at points too. So I wanted to dramatize that. So at the beginning of your book, you talk as well about how in high school you didn't really get yeah. Gatsby. When yeah. did when do you feel like you first started getting Gatsby, and did that coincide with your interest in becoming a professional critic? Yeah, I think it was grad school. Okay. I, I was TAing for a professor who was teaching, you know, the American greats, and I had to read Gatsby again and uh, teach it in a, you know the section that I was teaching and grade all those papers that the professor wasn't grading at UPenn. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> so I think that's when I really started to be drawn in by Nick's voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly then after, after I would begin teaching myself while I was still in grad school and teaching Gatsby, um, I was just blown away by it. I am, I am, I am more, it, you know, I just am more in awe of Gatsby every time I read it. And that includes this last spring when I read it with a great class. And we really did go sentence by sentence sometimes. Mm-hmm. And again, the things that they pulled out of Gatsby um, and the repetitions, you know, the deliberate repetitions sometimes, and just things so incidental as, Oh, when when Gatsby and Daisy are reunited in Chapter Five, Gatsby is drinking chartreuse. You know this green liqueur. You know, like, oh, oh my God! Oh, too bad, too bad. You're telling me that now, and I couldn't put it into the book. You right. know, it's amazing. It's, it, it's crazy. What you remember about that scene is that he's sopping wet. Right? Yes, that's, that's yes, right. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. And it's almost painfully man. awkward. Oh yeah, and and then when you think that Daisy's voice is what the novel keeps telling us about. And that she's allied with the image of the sirens, mm-hmm. these you know, classical um, creatures who drag men down to their watery deaths. The fact that, that Gatsby is sopping wet mm-hmm. when they're reunited oh, oh, in chapter yeah. five, it's, it's, it's a very ominous image. Oh, People always laugh. Yeah, People laughed yeah. during Gats when the actor playing Gatsby right. was dripping wet when he comes on stage. People laughed at Leonardo DiCaprio in the theater when I saw the premiere right. of you know, Baz Luhrmann's latest disaster. You know, it's like a funny yeah. moment. Yeah. There's Leo all sopping wet. It's not funny. It's, oh. it's um, you know, it's of course also looking forward to the fact that when Gatsby dies, he's he's in the swimming pool. He's gone under. Right. He's been pulled under. Right. So when you were at, at grad school grading papers, um, did you have the same ambivalence about the course content and the way people were reading Gatsby as you do now? I don't remember. Okay. Honestly, I don't remember. Um, I When I was in grad school, though, I did have a growing dread <laughs> of this life decision oh. that I had made. Uh, it's It started, um, it really started that first year. I, I, I was fortunate. I got a free ride to Penn. Mm-hmm. I, I, um, so, you know, that's how somebody like me would have gotten to Penn with a, with a grad school fellowship. But that first week, uh, 
at UPenn back in, what, the late 70s, as late as that, um, we would have sherry hours every Friday mm -hmm. at the, at the mm -hmm. English department. Penn was very formal in its the English department in its presentation, I think because it felt insecure about mm. its status as an Ivy League school, people still confused it with Penn State. So, you know, UPenn retaliated by being more Ivy than the other Ivies in, in some ways. And I really felt like instead of this community of like-minded, avid readers, I would really stepped into this cutthroat shark tank right of um, you know, folks who, for instance, for our master's exam, we all had to read every work of criticism ever written on uh, Daisy Miller by Henry James. And back then, the way you did that was to go to the um, reserve room mm -hmm. of the library and read all the texts, all the articles in bound copies of periodicals. I, I clearly remember opening up my first bound periodical collection and somebody had razored out the article we were wow, supposed to read yeah. you know it was it was like that and I, you know i you can look back and say oh well she was pretty naive but I, I was surprised by that i was surprised by how immediately it was this kind of jostling of i'm smarter than you or, or mm -hmm. I, I, somehow i i've again i own the language more than you do and um when I got the opportunity to write my first book review for The Village Voice, yeah. I really felt like I had died and gone to heaven because, you know, The Village Voice back then, back in the 80s, was kind of at the end, tail end of its golden age, mm -hmm. so I caught that. And, you know, people like Ellen Willis were writing rock criticism for The Village Voice. Um, and were, you, were you living in New York at that time? I wasn't or? living in New York, but I, I was at Penn, and a friend of mine had decided that she wasn't going to go ahead with trying to get a PhD in history. Right. And instead, she applied for a job at the Voice Literary Supplement, which was one of the great book review supplements of all time. Um, you know, thick. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Again, kind of like fresh air. You could review anything mm -hmm. as long as you could make a case for... Um, why it might be of interest to somebody out there. And, um, and the, the voice really gave unknowns a chance. It was known as the writer's newspaper, you know, started by people like Norman Mailer right. and Pete Hamill. So to be able to write with enthusiasm, mm -hmm. w to be able to use slang, which at that time in the academy you certainly couldn't use, to be able to um, be somewhat irreverent in, in, in your style. Um, I really felt like I found my voice by writing for the Village Voice, and that was that was a great gift. That also slowed down finishing right. my dissertation by years, you know, because uh, it, was, it was hard to go back to that other style. So once you did finish your dissertation, did you go straight into the academy, or did you... Yeah, because I needed a day job, right. too. And I liked teaching. I mean, right. I, I liked the combination of going back to, you know, the greatest hits of Western civilization, sure. and then also being able to dig into, well, what's new now? And, you know, the, the two passions... The two categories feed each other. I, I definitely incorporate, especially in classes that, like my New York literature mm -hmm. class, I definitely incorporate um, 
things that I've reviewed. These days we end with Patti Smith's Just Kids. We start with Edith Wharton mm-hmm. in that course. And um, and certainly as a critic, to, to be able to constantly think about great books that I've just mm-hmm. reread for courses and to make those connections, that, that's really invaluable. What books have come out recently, or what, what, what literature is out right now that... Um do you think speaks to what it means to be American almost as much as Gatsby does? Oh, wow. That's almost as much as Gatsby does. That's a tough one. Um, you know, I, I, I do think that it's not, it's not recent, of course, but I do agree with people who say, okay, we, we put Beloved on the list of okay, grades sure. that really tell us something That's about That's in the America. canon now. That's in the canon, right? right? Absolutely that. Um, God, I hate questions like this because I always feel <laughs> like I should have gone back and looked at my best of the year list for the last 20 years and, and really be able to answer this carefully and intelligently. Well, some of the novels, yeah, some of the novels that I nominated with... Um, my other two jurors for the Pulitzer Prize. Okay. Yeah. Um, what was that, 2012? Um, I, I really do think uh, David Foster Wallace, mm-hmm. there's nobody who wrote like him. Mm-hmm. Um, and There's nobody who writes like him now. There's nobody who wrote like him then. I think um, The Pale King, which we nominated mm-hmm. for the Pulitzer, although it's you know posthumous, it was put together by Michael Peach after his death, uh, Foster Wallace's editor. Um, you know, we wanted to give, we wanted to acknowledge David Foster Wallace's innovation in writing, his sweep, um, what he's talking about, the American workplace, mm-hmm. the American struggle. We also wanted to give a nod to an editor who in some ways is a modern day Maxwell Perkins, who would do that, who would go into his his writer's garage and work with those manuscripts and try to try to put himself into the writer's mind and try to try to somehow um, bring the vision to fruition in in novel form. I loved Karen Russell's Swamplandia because mm-hmm. I really thought that that was a great American tall tale, and um, Train Dreams, one of the great Dennis Johnson's Dennis Train Johnson. Dreams. Um, I think that's you ask a novel that's close to Gatsby. Okay. That's a novel that's close to Gatsby. Is there anything? So I mean, right now we're talking with you. We're in we're in D.C. and we're going through the. You know, primaries right now and the country does feel a little bit like it's bursting at the seams yeah um are there well i guess i could ask this in two ways one are there any novels out right now or even even if you just want to talk about gatsby mm-hmm. out that speak somehow to um a sense of yeah. national unity yeah. um and, and do you think literature can still be a, a a catalyst for feelings of unity wow national unity that's a good one um I don't know about the national unity part. I feel like literature right now is almost as, you know, people are in their camps. It's pretty partisan. It is pretty partisan. I feel like it's really hard right now to to come up with a title and say, okay, this is... This is a novel that brings us together. This Mm -hmm. is a novel which we can all read and and um, celebrate and you know somehow 
It speaks to all of us. That's that's a tough one. I also think that novelists tend not to attempt that. Sure. That's a. It's also tough to pull that off. I I read and reviewed a novel um, last week for Fresh Air by Jennifer Haig, who, a writer who I really like. Mm-hmm. She writes a lot about um, working class characters in Pennsylvania. And the novel's called Heat and Light. And it's about fracking. But it's, it's bigger than that. And she really did, I thought, a great job. I, I compared it um, to Tom, you know, Tom Wolfe. I actually think it's better than Bonfire oh, of the Vanities. Because Bonfire of the Vanities got, gets a little cartoonish. But um, she really tried to include, you know, not just... The farmers who felt they'd been ripped off mm-hmm. by their contracts with the companies that are doing the fracking, but the executives at the top, the guys who are working, you know, the 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 machines, you know, doing the fracking, like where everybody is coming from, right. in this mosaic of Americans who are trying to grab, in a sense, their own particular version of the American dream, which for most right. of these folks means making more money which isn't evil, but, you know, at, at what cost. And uh, I thought, thought that's, this is a great novel about America today and particularly lower middle class Americans who feel right. like um, so much is out of reach, education, a good job, a decent home, that it's so much is out of reach. Mm. I really felt like that's a novel that if I were recommending books to a presidential candidate i would i would recommend that book to a presidential candidate thanks very much for talking with me maureen thank you that was maureen corrigan talking about her book so we read on how the great gatsby came to be and why it endures to learn more about maureen check out her faculty page on georgetown's website and listen to npr's fresh air where you can hear her reviews of new releases both fiction and nonfiction. Finally, if you liked Maureen's take on F. Scott Fitzgerald, be sure to buy her book So We Read On. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. Gleaves Whitney is director of the center and producer of this podcast. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Tune in next week for my conversation with Ian Milheiser from the Center for American Progress. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.